Hey everybody, welcome to part two. We're going to continue with our interview with uh, Carrie. Here we go. In a previous podcast, we were talking about setting aside reserves uh, for CapEx, capital expenditures, replacements, and you know potentially some operating expense fluctuations. Um, I just wondered if you echoed that sentiment and, and how you may or may not help guide an investor to figure out what the proper amount of reserves may be for a property? Great question. Yes, I do. It's all part of the initial calculation as to whether or not this property makes sense. I always have in the expenses, I have um, investors include both a um, an operating um, repair budget, if you will, and then a capital expense budget for the long term. Eventually, the roof's going to need to be replaced. The water heater's going to go. The furnace may go and need to be replaced. There may be some larger structural things that you want to do to the property, um, put in new windows, for example. Uh, so if you start from day one, saving for those eventualities in a, in a separate savings account as you start to get income into your property. And if we we program it right and, and set the goals right. When you purchase it, you're going to have enough income coming in that you're going to have this amount of income to put in your pocket or to put in an account to buy your next property. But you're also going to be putting aside a certain amount every month to put in your repair budget, to put in your capital expense budget. And it's not going to be a surprise when it comes to the end, <laughs> when something happens. So on that note, out of curiosity, uh, how many different accounts do you recommend? So, you know, we have like security deposits, uh, we have the the rent coming in, you want to set money aside in a separate account for CapEx. Um, and then also you may have like we have in our situation where we were given prorated rent. Uh, so in a situation like that, how many different accounts do you think somebody should have to keep separation without making it too difficult to manage? That, uh, well, I mean, typically, if you're purchasing through an LLC, you were going to have, I would say, the three accounts. You want to have a security deposit account. I, you always want to have your security deposits on hand to be able to pay the tenant when they move out. You don't want to have to be searching around to try and find that money to, to pay back to them. And I would have a separate savings account for your um uh, your capex and your repair fund just there, and then the rest your 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 essentially your checking account. Um, if you want to keep the money in there and just let it build up, some people have a personal savings account that they move a certain amount of money uh, into every every month uh, to build up their savings to purchase the next one, and they only leave in the checking account what they need to pay the taxes and the insurance and and the mortgage payment. Um, so I would say three at a minimum, but it really depends on some people like to commingle everything in one account and they keep track of it in, a, in QuickBooks or some other, you know, rent tech or one of the other applications that you can use. Uh, other people like to have you know, different LLCs for every property they own and they have three separate accounts for every property they own and it's all segregated at the bank. It really depends on on your preference in terms of how you manage your money and what you're more comfortable with. Are you more comfortable going to your system and looking to see what your balance is? Or are you more comfortable going to your bank and looking to see what your balance is? If you're a nerd like me, you use a spreadsheet and you have use everything a spreadsheet. organized. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, Patricia, you mentioned that um, you had prorated rents. Um, I'm assuming you were mentioning uh, or referring to at closing. Uh, so I wanted to ask Carrie what some of the uh, common hiccups are at closing that you see with new investors where they are kind of surprised or didn't know something or maybe you're um, educating them prior to that point in the transaction. So how do you how do you prep them? Well, I hope that there's never a surprise at closing. <laughs> <laughs> My goal as an agent is to make sure that everybody um, long before you even put in the offer that you know how this is going to work and that you're comfortable with the whole financial aspect of this, that you know what this is going to cost you out of pocket or at least have a general idea um, so that we're, you know, or at least in the ballpark of what you were thinking. Uh, and as we go through the, the process to do whatever inspections we, we, we set up to do and discover what we discover and negotiate what we negotiate, uh, I hope that by the time we get to closing, there are no hiccups. Uh, the biggest hiccups I've seen is really sometimes lenders. Um, a, a, an investor will work with a lender that's not as on the ball as as I would like. And there's underwriting is in, it seems the way they talk about it, it's in a cave someplace and nobody, there's no phone service there, just internet service. And Nobody can talk to anybody there. We just have to wait until they make up their note. I've sat in closings for you know six hours waiting for the final approval from the bank. Who said they, they had approved, you know, like weeks ago? But it's got to send all the paperwork there and wait for them to give the final thumbs up before we can actually exchange keys and checks. Um, so yeah, that my goal is not to have any surprises. Uh, so we had an interesting situation, uh, as you know, that uh, we had a seller who moved to China. And so we had to go through the process of having her go to the embassy and sign the paperwork and so on. I'm um, just curious to know if you have uh, any other interesting stories like that or if you want to share how that all went. Because I think we kind of sat on the background, uh, you know, as you went through the, you know, the hoops to make it happen. Yes, that was an interesting uh, situation when I found out that the seller was actually in China. I reached out to the title company and said, so I know we need to get the deed notarized. Have you ever worked with someone in China? And, and in fact, they actually had. And they said, yes, they just need to take the paperwork to the embassy and the, at the American embassy and the um, they will process it and they will send it to us. So I'm like, oh. It sounds fairly simple. Um, my only other experience with a foreign country is in Italy. I actually sell property in Italy personally and have had had a couple of clients purchase property over there. And it's a completely different process um, and a very interesting closing process. It can take multiple days because they don't do it quite the way we do it here. We sort of try to close and we don't have all the paperwork. Somebody forgot something. So we'll come back tomorrow and whoop. We forgot something else, so, so we'll come back tomorrow. And it, it can take two or three attempts. So are the Italians drunk when you're trying to go to closing? No, they just like, that broke down. They, just, they don't have a title process the way we have a title process. It's all handled by lawyers. And people are supposed to problem. show up with all of this paperwork that they need to bring. And I guess the lawyers don't send out a list. And so they 
so I've advised my clients in both cases, the lawyers and have told me, don't send your clients to closing because I don't have any clue when it's going to actually close. And, you know, if they're on a definite timeline and they want to get the keys and move in or go see their place, it could take a week. So don't send your clients. We'll send you the keys. Yeah. So I think during COVID, I think that created quite a few closing issues, especially when things, you know, first were starting to shut down. And then when they half opened up again, um, you know, I think title and the title process, uh, title, you know, searches, think everything seems to be taking longer. Um, mm -hmm. Has that been your experience? Um, have you, yeah, you know, figured been, out a workaround? It's been all over the map. Uh, at the beginning of COVID, when we first shut down in, I think it was March of 2020, I was banned from going to closings for the two months that we were told to stay home. Um, and so I, for, for several closings, I had, I had to stay home and they mailed my check to the, to my company. Uh, my buyers and sellers would go. Sometimes they closed in tents. Some, some title companies had a tent set up. I had one closing. I had the seller and she had a three car garage and they had the, 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 the sellers in one bay and they had the title company in the middle bay and they had the buyers in the third bay and they closed in the garage of the house that they were, they were buying because they weren't allowed in the title company at that point. Um, since then, yes, things have taken a long time, partially because um, the, the official governments uh, aren't working full time in the offices. So getting water bills and tax bills and things like that can take a long time. Getting an LLC set up takes 30 plus days these days. It used to be a five day process. Um, so there's there's lots of monkey wrenches. So we just need to, you know, try and do this as simply as possible and try not to make it uh, complicated that's going to involve uh, in touches with too many organizations that could delay us. Yeah, a lot of my uh, closings being um, mainly commercial and and um, using more CMBS lenders at a lot of them out in New York, a lot of our closings were always virtual. And, and I think on the smaller investment front, that's not the case. Everything seems to be in person. So do you think that closings for the smaller investors are going to kind of start to trend to a more virtual fashion and format? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, mainly because title still needs, or the, the deed needs to be signed in person. So typically, um, they, they, the state has not allowed um, virtual closing. Even during the pandemic, we still had to have a physical deed signed by the seller. Uh, they never got to a point where they could do a completely virtual closing. And it just, it doesn't seem to be a trend that's, that's going forward in the state of Pennsylvania, perhaps in other states. Um, it, it's, it's possible, um, but here is for smaller investment properties. I don't know if the commercial uh, mortgage-backed security is different, Um in terms of their lending practices and whether you use New York laws um, because the lending is originating there, I don't know. But in Pennsylvania, yeah. we've been pretty much still a paper focused 
A lot of our processes, um, you know, even loan documents are still being negotiated, you know, finalized the day before closing or so. But we have original signatures and we have a notary in our office. So we have signature pages, which can be voluminous, um, yeah. usually signed and FedExed uh, to or overnighted to the title company who's holding mm -hmm. all the originals there. Um, and then we're waiting for, you know, buyer and um, their lender to kind of sign off on, okay, loan documents are signed off on. Then there's, you know, the next step of the process with the funds flowing into the account. Title says, okay, receive funds, have all the bills, buyer and seller have agreed to the settlement sheet, and then they release the funds. So we've been... I mean, that's been four or five years, if not more, that we've been running that process mm -hmm. um, that way. So I find it interesting that, you know, the smaller transactions, and maybe it's because of the, the volume of smaller transactions that would overwhelm title companies possibly um, mm -hmm. if they all ran it that way. Yeah. And you're still doing uh, wet signatures, they call it. Um, on Correct. documents. And that's the, the key piece until we get to a technology where a few people, organizations, banks, title companies feel comfortable that no one can cheat the system and get an electronic signature to transfer a deed because that's the thing that, that says I own it or I don't own it. And that's they have not been able to figure out a way to be comfortable with electronic signatures on deeds and until we get to an electronic signature process that is absolutely tamper proof, uh, I don't see us ever going fully to uh, electronic closings where we're, you know, we're not touching any paper. So I have a, uh, another curiosity question. Uh, so we talked about you, you know, enjoying working with new investors, you know, people who are um, just trying to figure their way out in here. Um, so. Could you share with us maybe what are some of the characteristics of investors, uh, potential investors that you find are like easiest to work with or uh, maybe have the most success? Obviously, we're going to assume everything you say is about us. Us, yep. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. Right. Narcissistic <laughs> people here. So tell us about us. Tell Just us kidding. about what you like about us. Yeah. <laughs> what do you like about us? Well, the really, the really cool thing. Um, about newer investors is they're all excited. I mean, it's it's similar to people buying their first home. Um, all excited and terrified because one, you know, it's one thing to to buy a home and you're going to sit in it and enjoy it and and live in it, and you know what that feels like. You've lived in houses since you were born, but you've probably never owned an investment property. And now you have this thing called a tenant and you have extra appliances that you're responsible for, but you don't take care of. Um, somebody else is taking care of them or not. And you have another roof to worry about and you have more toilets to worry about. And are they going to pay you the rent? And what if they don't pay you the rent? How are you going to deal with that? So it, it's, it's a journey and it can be absolutely overwhelming for some people. And some people, we kind of I take them down the road and usually it's one spouse or the other. This is like, 
I don't want to do this. 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 And eventually I talked them out of it. In, in some cases, I said, you know, I don't think that you should do this right now. Maybe when you have more money saved up and you can afford to lose that money if, if something were to go wrong. But if both spouses are not on board, it really is a recipe for um, an unhappy situation because it, there's something's going to go wrong with a house. I mean, it's a house or it's a property. They, they never are perfect. They never stay perfect. And tenants have issues. Some of them have big dogs. Some of them have 50 cats. Some of them don't pay. Some of them quit their jobs. Some of them get divorced. I mean, it. so you've got to be able to accept the fact that this is a, a living, breathing entity, not buying like a piece of art, you're going to put it on the wall. Um, it's it's going to need to be care and feeding. And if you don't have the time or you don't have the desire or the will to to get through this and just make it work, then you shouldn't be investing in real estate. You should be investing in something else that you're comfortable with. And I've got to say, I do appreciate your honesty about that because when we first met you, you were like, look, you need to get psychotic help and then come back into the business. <laughs> and you know what? I feel a lot better. And it was your honesty really helped out. Uh, when do you think it's time for a person or people or company to shed a real estate professional? Is there a time? Um, it you you sometimes you outgrow the person. Um, sometimes they outgrow you and they decide to retire or move on or you know. There's no real set figure. I, I mean, I've worked with my my longest investor. I've probably worked with him for nine eight or nine years, and I still work with him and. Um, he has a number of properties and we still, he still relies on my honesty and my support in helping him look at properties and, and make decisions and, and negotiate the offers. I mean, that's the other key piece is negotiating the offer. It's not just the price. There are a whole bunch of terms that you can play with and maybe the seller is stuck on this price. Okay. So what else can we do? with the terms to make this a better deal for you. Um, and, and so, you know, my experience comes in there with um, long-term investors that they still need that market knowledge and that, you know, up to date, what's going on, what can I do? And how do you, how do you think about this? Cause he doesn't think about negotiating deals all day long, whereas I do. I had another question about, uh, and I'm going to butcher your tagline, so I won't even try to say it. <laughs> um, but uh, your tagline talks about uh, creating generational wealth. So can you expand on that and say, you know, what does that mean to you? What that means to me is creating a portfolio of investment properties. So unlike putting money in your 401k or other investment vehicles, um, that you intend to liquidate over time once you retire. Uh, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have those things. Absolutely, you should have other investments other than your real estate investments. But with real estate, it is potentially a unlimited ATM that will continue to provide cash that you can draw upon to live on 
to support you and potentially support your future generations with the 1031 exchange uh, legislation still in place. It's been in place since the 30, 20s or 30s. Uh, they keep threatening to take it away, but so far they have not been able to do that. And there are now a few other investment vehicles similar to that um, that they have um, come up with, um, not as popular and not as easy to use. But it allows you, the 1031 allows you to, um, your spouse or your children or any other relatives inherit the properties that you have left when you pass at the market value at that time. So you all the capital gains that you have uh, avoided paying taxes on because you didn't sell anything during your lifetime, your uh, inheriting per people um, <laughs> don't um, don't have to pay those taxes because they inherited at the market value on the date of your death. So you can then basically transfer your little ATM machine over to them and they can then continue to take the money out of the ATM on a monthly basis, or they can sell it at the current market value and convert that cash to something else. All right. And that's something we're going to try to do is get an ATM here for our son. He doesn't know what that is yet. Um, but if you are in need of a real estate professional for your investments, maybe Carrie's the right person for you, especially if you live in the Lehigh Valley. Again, her information is down below in the podcast notes. And if you want to send us an email, don't forget our email address is this is how we real estate at gmail.com. And I just want to thank everybody. Uh, of course, uh, Carrie, you were wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love it. That's awesome. And of course, Lisa and Patricia, thank you both so much. You're and welcome. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and in one of our upcoming episodes we're going to be talking about terms and terminology um so if you didn't understand this episode we will send you the decoding episode in either the next one or the following one thank complete you everyone with decoder ring. yes complete with decoder <laughs> ring you just have to get a cereal box and we'll tell you which one it's a secret message all right guys have a good one thank you so much Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>